BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's Friday, October 29th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hart. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. Find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Well, Halloween is upon us, which means it's time to delve into the science of the creepy and crawly. And there's no better item in nature that is creepy and terrifying than the idea of zombies. And I know, I know what you're thinking. Zombies are so yesterday. They're on the decline. The Walking Dead is over. But zombies in the animal kingdom are more terrifying than the zombies in science fiction and pop culture. You you don't have to take my word for it. You can listen to this week's guest, Matt Simon. He's a writer at Wired, and his first book, called The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar, vaulted him into this area of exploring all the forms of zombieism that exists in the animal kingdom. From funguses that take over ants to obviously wasps that that take over caterpillars to viruses that take over our human brains and even the sorry Adam and even worms that migrate from fish to bird back to fish. These are harrowing stories, so I warn you, the listener, that these are terrifying tales. Because at points during this interview, I fell silent because of how just outrageous some of the stories are. It's just a reminder that when we think about behavior in the animal kingdom, everything isn't quite what it seems. And we might have a lot less free will than we initially thought. Matt's new book is called. Sorry, Adam, one more time. Matt's new book is called Plight of the Living Dead, What Real-Life Zombies Reveal About Our World and Ourselves. With that, let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Matt Simon. This episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Madison Reed is a company that the founder, Amy Arrett, named after her daughter, and it's revolutionizing the way women color their hair. For decades, women have had two options, outdated at-home hair color, or the time and expense of going to a salon. 
So Amy created Madison Reed because she believes that women deserve better than the status quo. Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color with the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color in an ammonia-free formula with ingredients that you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from a salon, but the reality is that you had more me time to do what you love. Experience beautiful, multidimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. And Madison Reed would like to honor Inquiring Minds listeners with 10% off, plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's code M-I-N-D-S. Matt Simon, welcome to Inquiring Minds. And thank you for having me. So we're talking about zombies. So I have to start by saying there's more than one type of zombie. This is what my upbringing in science fiction has taught me. So what do you mean when you say zombies in the animal world? Yeah, so the zombies we know and love from pop culture are, of course, the undead, the drooling, I think, a lot of the time, the dead eyes, the wandering around trying to bite people, generally speaking. Um, That is what we know and love. But it turns out that in the animal kingdom, there are also many, many examples of parasites that take over the behavior of their hosts in ways that are far more complicated and fascinating, no offense to Hollywood or any other pop culture, but they just haven't thought out the creepiest zombifications that you actually can find out in nature happening all the time. How common is this? Because before reading your book, I sort of thought this is an outlier scenario. I've heard of a few stories of zombieism in nature, but there's a way that you were relentless in layering story after story, example after example, And I'm starting to walk away with the impression that this is pretty common in the animal kingdom. Yeah, it it, it seems to be from what scientists are finding, you know, kind of it's in the early days of the science. It's been a couple of decades since scientists have really been diving into uh, the really complicated interactions between parasite and host here. But as you mentioned, this is extremely common. So you find this way across the tree of life, completely stretched across it. So you have things like worms that zombify, things like crustaceans called gamorids. Um, there are funguses that go after ants. That's a famous one. Um, so that's a completely different side of the tree of life. Uh, wasps do it, bacteria do it, viruses do it. And it really, I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface as to the depths of these, not only the the complications of the manipulations, but just how common it is, and oftentimes just how subtle it is. It's probably far more widespread than what we can realize because we rely as humans on eyesight. So we see a zombie ant acting funny, and then we determine, oh, there's something in its brain making it do weird things. But, you know, out there, there could be really, really delicate manipulations of sounds that animals might be making to maybe uh, attract predators for the parasites that then get eaten um, and complete its life cycle in the stomach of another animal, um, or even smells that could be messing with pheromones in in particular. Um, And it's really just, we're beginning to dive into it and we're really limited by our own senses, which is a shame, but you know, the, the more scientists dig into it, the more they can not only draw out just how complicated these manipulations are, but just how omnipresent almost it is in nature. 
And just a quick follow-up to that. Um, why? I mean, this seems like such a ridiculous evolutionary trait to evolve. The fact that you're going to, instead of doing something yourself, evolve a mechanism to essentially take full control, in in some cases, of a different species and all the trial and error that must take to, to get to that point. It seems like a ludicrously long path to go down. Yeah, you would. I mean, that's the beauty of natural selection. This is all completely automatic. It's not like somebody thought, oh, I'm going to torture an ant today by inventing a fungus that takes over its brain and orders it up to a very specific spot in the rainforest and then rain spores down on the colony below. Nobody set out to do that because that's just way too creative for a human being to begin to think about. Uh, but it was just natural selection, fine tuning these manipulations over millennia that we know from fossil records that the fungus that manipulates ants is at least 50 million years old. This has been going on for at least that long, probably much longer in not only the fungus, but other uh, parasitic manipulators. And yeah, the, the question is why? And, and, you know, so many parasites get away with just kind of draining the energy out of their host. And you know, it turns out that the answer is very specific to each parasite. So something like a zombie ant, it needs to order the ant around so it doesn't get found out by the ant's comrades, which then pick up the infected ant and drag it out of colony. That's the end of the fungus's life cycle if that happens. So it has developed this really intricate manipulation of the ant because it had to, because over the many generations, these very small mutations popped up that allowed the fungus to keep adding these layers of manipulation to the, the, the host. And that has been the case from wasps to worms to funguses. It, it's, it's really everywhere. And it's, it varies from species to species. And, and that to me is really the beauty of natural selection that this just happened. And it happened many, many times independently across the tree of life. So let's start with a few examples. You mentioned the wasp. And I, I just want to acknowledge that one of the most horrifying things I've ever watched on YouTube was watching a wasp basically take control of a of a, a brown spider by stinging it in its in its sort of uh, thorax near near its head actually and and controlling it to move back to its nest and you have many stories of wasps in this book um, and the one that stuck out to me was the jewel wasp yeah the the wasps uh, I go to the lengths of calling them the flying middle fingers of the animal kingdom in the book uh, they <laughs> They are mean, and they're not just mean to us by stinging us and giving us ouchies, but uh, it gets much more terrible for their other victims out in nature. And all respect due to wasps, I think they're fantastic, and what they have evolved is incredible, and, and in particular with the jewel wasp, as you had mentioned. So the jewel wasp is about half the size of its victim, which is a cockroach, um, and that means that it somehow needs to get the cockroach, which becomes food for the wasp's young, into a burrow. And what it has evolved is mind control. What it does first is tackle the cockroach and drive its stinger in between its front two legs. And that paralyzes them so they can't bat away what's coming next, which is the wasp pulling out her stinger and driving it through the cockroach's neck and into its brain. Wait, wait, before that... You started by saying the cockroach is basically twice the size of this wasp. So this is not a a fight that you would initially think is on the side of the wasp. 
no, I wouldn't pick this fight if I were the Wasp, uh, unless I had a mind control venom uh, in my belly that I can inject into my victim. So, you know, when it does pierce into the brain, it has sensors on its stinger that can feel around for two specific spots in the brain that govern locomotion. And it is only in these two places that the Wasp injects her venom. And when she pulls out her stinger, the cockroach, which is, again, much larger than her, doesn't fight back. It just stands there like an idiot grooming itself. It, it doesn't move whatsoever. And, and while it is doing that, the uh, wasp goes off, finds a burrow, and comes back and then gnaws off the antennae of the cockroach, like you do, uh, and laps up the blood. And that is probably to gain back some of the energy she has lost from fighting a creature that is twice her size. So uh, the cockroach keeps grooming itself, and at some point, the potion kicks in. And it is then when the wasp is able to grab onto a nub with her, with her jaws, a nub of the antenna, and lead the cockroach from that spot into the burrow. And mind you, this whole time, the cockroach is perfectly capable of running away or flying away because if you, and scientists have done this, they've picked up a cockroach that has been stung in the brain and thrown it in water and it snaps out of it. It actually gets back its locomotion and scurries away. So something in this venom is keeping the cockroach not from moving, but from deciding to move, to deciding to save its life and get away from it. That's so much more subtle. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's and it's it's it, this whole time it could very well escape, but it doesn't. So when the wasp leads it, doesn't drag it into the burrow, but leads the cockroach into this burrow, the mother wasp lays an egg on its stomach, and that uh, is pretty much the end of our cockroach. The mother wasp seals up the burrow with little pebbles, and that's more, more again not to keep the cockroach in because it's. You know, it's a big roach. It's able to push through those pebbles. It's to keep other predators out from coming and getting her food and disrupting her young wasp's life. So the larva hatches from the egg and begins drinking the bodily fluids of the cockroach like you do. Um, and then when those run out, it will then drill into the cockroach's abdomen and consume its organs. And interestingly, it leaves the most vital organs for, for last. So that's things like the heart and the central nervous system, because it wants to keep this roach alive as long as possible. And you can only imagine what it's like, not only getting stung in the brain and having your will erased, your, your will to escape, but then being devoured alive by this little larva. Which then, you know, turns into a pupa and develops in the hollowed out abdomen of the cockroach and emerges a couple of days later as an adult wasp and removes itself from the burrow. And that is then the cycle that then goes out. And if it's a female, it does the same thing to more cockroaches. And it's always the female choosing one cockroach and leaving one egg. So she's doing this to different cockroaches in this poor ecosystem. This population of, of cockroaches are completely tormented by this wasp that has developed powers of mind control. And again, that's probably due to the fact that she's so much smaller than them. She can't just sting them and knock them unconscious because she can't drag them all the way to the burrow. They have to be conscious and able to move, but you know, conscious in a different way where they are not able to make the decision to flee. And in fact, they just follow the dual wasp uh, to their doom.
I, I realize I've, I've fallen silent here for a while, and I know listeners can't see me, but my mouth is just hanging open right now because I'm just horrified at this. And it's weird. Your book made me feel empathy for a cockroach, which is not something that's easy to do. I do I'm not terribly fond of the cockroach. Um, this is a brutal existence, uh, you know, final final uh, part of, of your life. So as you said at the top, the wasps are, are supremely mean in the in this way. I still it's still amazing to me that when you say they like feel around in the brain for something because usually when we talk about zombieism that affects the brain there isn't this sort of oh I'm going I'm going to inject this sort of venom or this neurotransmitter that's going to you know cause these errors this is very specific in a way that I, I really didn't expect yeah yeah and this actually comes back to your question of why on earth this would evolve so it seems pretty clear for the jewel wasp if she's able to attack bigger cockroaches, she's able to provide her young with more food. But if you look into other wasps that are terrorizing other animals, so there's this one called the tarantula hawk, which gives you an indication of what kind of creature it is. It's a very large wasp that attacks tarantulas in the southern United States. And what it does, it, it stings them once and knocks them out almost completely. And it's big enough to be able to drag that tarantula into a burrow. It doesn't need to evolve that mind control. It doesn't have as complicated of um, a, a method. And that, and that really goes to show why these sorts of things evolve. And again, it's different from species to species, even within a, a kingdom like the wasps. Um, and by the way, if you were to be stung by a tarantula hawk, it would be by far the worst day of your life because it is probably one of the most sting, painful stings on the planet. There is scientific literature that tells you what you should do if you were to be stung by one of the stings. It's about three minutes of the most intense pain you could possibly imagine. But if you just lie down and scream, you're less liable to run around and hurt yourself. And it passes in three minutes. And again, this is official scientific literature from somebody who unfortunately experienced this, this terrible wow. sting. That is intense. So this is like on the basic level of the examples you list in your book, though. The the jewel wasp, just single, single uh, 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 creature attacking a single uh, host. It gets more complicated than this. There's many different parasites you you um, detail in the book that live in different organisms, and they actually pass up a chain to live their life cycle. Yeah, much, much more complicated. These are, are typically worms. And, and I think a, a really good system to, to talk about are these parasitic worms that infect crustaceans called gamorids. And these are kind of like shrimp-like creatures that live in fresh water. Um, so the worm has an interesting life cycle in that it not only needs to get itself into one of these gamorids where it feeds on their nutrients and, and sucks out their energy, but it also needs to complete its life cycle in the belly of either a bird or a fish. And that's where the manipulation gets all the more incredible because depending on the species, depending on that final host, it will very subtly manipulate the gamorid in different ways. So a gamorid that is infected with a worm that needs to get into a bird, oddly enough, spends a disproportionate amount of time near the surface. And that is probably a manipulation on the worm's part to get the gamorid near the predator. That gets the uh, host, of course, eaten. And then the worm finds itself in the belly of a bird, which just so happens to be 
the only place where it can reproduce and complete its life cycle. Um, pretty clear that that is a, a, a very interesting manipulation, but it gets a little more different with the, the worms that need to get themselves into fish. They'll actually manipulate their gamuts to spend more time down uh, further in the water column away from the surface. And that probably gets them closer to fish where they get eaten again, complete their life cycle. The only place they can in the belly of a fish. So you have these two related uh, species of worm that are not only manipulating gamma threads, but they're manipulating to their own ends in a very subtly different way. And, and it's, to me, it's incredible that science has even figured this out because like, like I said, we're these visual creatures and we can see that, oh, they, these gamma are infected with worms. They're spending a little bit of time uh, near the surface, but there's also this different group that is spending time at the bottom. And where it gets even more interesting is that you are creating these distinct populations where you have a population of gamma that is then split between, you know, irrationally, you would say, spending time at the surface where they could be eaten by birds, because that, of course, ends their life cycle, um, and, and other gamma that are spending time down at the bottom near the, the, the bottom of the creek or lake or wherever you would find these. So you would then ask, well, why at that extra post? Why not spend your entire life as a worm inside the gamut where it's nice and cozy, you get all these nutrients. Um, and it probably went a little something like this. It, it, they did begin probably hanging out in a belly of a gamut and, and just taking it easy. Um, but you know, there are some of those gamuts that are get, gonna get eaten up by either fish or birds. And if a worm, a particular worm, has a mutation that allows it to survive in one of those stomachs, it can then pass down its genes. So you then might have this trait propagate in the population. So you add this extra host, which seems like an inconvenience at first, but it is not only a way to you know, survive if your host gets eaten, it also helps you distribute yourself. If you get into a bird or a fish, it's more likely that you're gonna travel farther and release your young in other you know, streams or, or ponds and things like that. So what at first seems like a dumb way to go about life that is adding an extra host, which complicates matters, uh, is in fact a pretty good strategy. And, and they've evolved this very precise manipulation to get the camera where you would want either that's near the surface or down below, depending on whether you want to get into a fish or a bird. It's an incredibly complicated system that you know not only messes with these individual gamuts, but you know, has the opportunity of changing the very fabric of ecosystems because you're splitting these populations up. Yeah, I, I just want to jump in and say I'm I'm so sorry to any listeners that are eating any meals right now, especially fish and or birds of any sort. Um, I, I do want to talk about that ecosystem thing because that's an interesting uh, idea. Now we have these fish, even though the you know the differences in behavior are subtle, they could be profound on the ecosystem. This zombieism. While you could look at it sort of zoomed out and say it's just a simple predator-prey type interaction, is much more nuanced than that. Is this like how is this affecting different ecosystems? Because I imagine this could be devastating in certain conditions. Yeah, the the research there is pretty early, but you know it can also be the opposite. Um, what the preliminary research is showing is that these zombified critters might have an interesting effect on biodiversity. And a really interesting example is cockles in New Zealand. What, what's a cockle? 
Oh, so yes, a, a cockle is a, a little bivalve. Um, they're delicious. They live in the mud in uh, coastal areas, and they unfortunately get infected with this worm. And it doesn't so much manipulate the behavior of the uh, the bivalve by going through its central nervous system or anything like that, um, but actually acts physically to immobilize it. So it actually, the, the worm will invade only the foot of the cockle, which is a muscle that allows the cockle to move up and down the mud. Um, and that in turn mixes up the mud and is good for some critters, um, but you know not good for others, uh, namely the cockle. So what happens is they, the infected cockles end up sitting at the surface of the mud. Uh, and when that happens, you actually get these tiny, tiny ecosystems forming in between their shells, those little empty spaces as they're butting up against each other. And, and one study found that you actually see an increase in biodiversity in places where these zombified cockles are more prevalent. So, you know, that is, that's really good data to show that they are manipulating these, these outfires are manipulating ecosystems on a wide scale that we're just beginning to understand it. And, you know, coming back to, to the, the gamerids and the fish and the birds, it's not only ruining the day of the gamer, but potentially giving birds and, and fish these really good food sources. They're making these gamerids, which seem to be acting against their own self-interest, and indeed they are, just not their fault. Uh, it's giving them this good source of food for these predators. And it's going to take some extra research into, you know, ecosystems are, of course, very complicated places that are difficult to tease apart. But in the coming years, it should be interesting to see, as scientists dig into not only how are these uh, parasites manipulating their hosts and getting them to do things against their will, but how is that then affecting the ecosystem at large? As any good zombie story goes, it isn't just about the zombies overrunning the hosts uh, and and just wiping them away. There is some pushback. And uh, a lot of the stories that you've shared so far, the zombies sort of rule the day. They're kind of getting what they want. Um, but are there examples of, of pushback from, from potential hosts that, that can er eradicate or at least get rid of the, the parasite in question? There are indeed, yeah. Like any good animal, these poor uh, hosts have immune systems that are supposed to keep these critters out. So we like to think of parasites as these kind of freeloaders, right? They get into other critters' bodies and they sap them of energy and kind of just ride around for free. But it turns out that it is an incredibly difficult place to survive. Um, it is an environment that really fights back. So these uh, across these different hosts, these different animals, they are deploying immune defenses to find these critters and remove them from the body. Um, and it, there's also some pushback then from the parasites, which have in some cases evolved bodies that seem to just avoid detection by the immune system. So this gets particularly interesting with a fungus that infects flies. And a lot like the fungus that infects ants in the rainforest, the, the fungus orders the fly to a particular spot. And this is at the top of a blade of grass or the top of a plant. Um, and it's here where the fungus erupts from the body of the fly and rains down spores onto other flies below. Um, so, but what happens is if it's early enough in the infection, sometimes these flies will actually sun themselves. They'll spend more time out in the solar energy. And that's probably because they're trying, not consciously, of course, but physiologically, they're trying to 
bake off the fungus that has infected their body. And you can actually find that they've quantified this, that when the flies do this early enough in the infection, they'll actually be able to survive. They'll they'll fight off the fungus that will die inside them um, and they'll go about their lives without getting manipulated to this specific spot in the forest. Wow. So they, so they like raise their body temperature almost by by sunning themselves. Yeah. So like, you know, us, we have the flu, uh, we get a fever. That's our body's attempt to cook off whatever is ailing us. Uh, You know, flies don't have that option that doesn't kick on automatically a kind of fever. So they actually call it behavioral fever. What they can do is they can raise their body temperature by spending more time in the sun. Just think of it like if you had the flu, you wanted to get better. Uh, your body can't do that automatically. You have to go uh, to a tanning salon or whatever to to warm up. It's the same principle, but uh, they, these, these flies just aren't as complicated as we are. But they do have this really interesting defense that seems to be able to to really get rid of the parasite before it has a chance to take hold of the psyche in particular. I almost hesitate to ask this, but, um, you know, I read the book, so I know that some of the examples uh, of how you actually conducted research for this. In a lot of cases, it seems like you you talk to a lot of scientists um, in the field, but in a few cases, you actually went to various labs or locations where these parasites existed. And I'm wondering if you can just tell a tale of of going to some of these places and and just generally the the feeling about the scientists exploring these these kind of strange behaviors. Yeah, I mean, overall, the feeling is exuberance. I mean, how could you not, as a scientist, studying these incredibly fascinating manipulations that most people aren't going to believe you when you tell them, right? But there's so much data to show within these individual systems, whether it's a fungus or a worm, that this is happening on a daily level and on a large scale that is, again, probably affecting whole ecosystems. And and one interesting example that I got to actually experience is uh, I went to the University of New Mexico uh, and I went out with a researcher named Ben Hanel. He is studying something called a horsehair worm. And this one is particularly creepy almost in a way where you go out into a forest and he took me out into this lovely forest in New Mexico and we're looking for bodies of water. Um, and we finally, after searching around for some time, find this little pond, this little watering hole for presumably cattle. And in it are lots and lots of these very thin worms. Uh, and he picked them out of the pond and let me hold them uh, in my hand. There's a mass of them and they feel like al dente angel hair pasta, essentially. And they're squirming around, but they are uh, luckily harmless to me. So why are we finding them in water? Well, it turns out that these get inside crickets. Um, And when they grow to maturity, feeding off the juices of the cricket, they take over the cricket's mind in order to jump into water, which, of course, is not in the cricket's best interest because you can drown or get eaten by a fish. And you guessed it, it is only in this water that the worm can complete its life cycle. They come together in mass and mate, and their eggs drop to the bottom of the, the, uh, the, the floor, and they turn into larvae and get into other insects. Those insects turn into things like mosquitoes, and then the mosquitoes get eaten by the crickets and we get this whole cycle going over and over again so you know, going out and actually seeing these things um you know in part proved to me that these scientists weren't all pulling my leg but also 
uh, really shows the scale of what's happening. And, and really, if you're not looking for it, if you don't have a trained expert like Ben Hanno, uh, these manipulations can really elude us because when we went to this little body of water, there were no crickets. Uh, and it turns out that in his lab where he can take these crickets and infect them with uh, worms, they will almost always survive the worms erupting from their abdomens. They drill a little hole and taste wow. the water. And once they hit water, the worm then squirms out. I have a video that will haunt my dreams forever. Uh, if anybody wants it, I can send it to them. <laughs> of uh, In the lab, we had these little dishes and he just threw a cricket in the water and you saw the worm immediately just wiggle out and it takes just a, a couple of minutes and the cricket is totally fine. And, you know, in, in nature, you will get usually one worm per cricket for the infection. But in his lab, uh, this is why I like Ben Hanel, by the way, he has infected them with up to 30 worms each and they will all come out of the abdomen. Yet the crickets were almost always survive the trauma. Um, wow. So zombification in this case isn't necessarily a death sentence for the cricket. And there's an interesting theory called the mafia hypothesis that it's actually in the cricket's best interest to cooperate with the worm. It wants in a way to jump into water and, you know, risk its life in that way, but it is doomed if it can't get rid of the worm. If it doesn't get rid of it, the worm will die inside of it. And then of course the cricket will get a nasty infection and die itself. So it's not, a, it's again, not one of those conscious decisions that cricket says, oh, something feels a bit funny and I should probably jump into this body of water and a worm will erupt from my abdomen. But you know, there's some probably physiological cue that uh, there, and of course there's also some behavioral modification. The worms are releasing chemicals uh, on top of this, but it's a maybe just an extra nudge to get that manipulation going. And instead of sealing its fate as a dead cricket, uh, usually they'll survive and crawl off just fine. Are we safe? I mean, you are safe from the horsehair worm, but I imagine as a species, we're not um, immune to these parasitic effects that can lead to zombification. And I think we oftentimes talk about toxo, the um, the parasite that lives in in cat feces around this. But you have many examples of where we're susceptible, uh, including something like rabies, which I don't think about in this context. Yeah, and you know, I hadn't either going into writing this book, rabies as a manipulator of behavior. So you see this most commonly in the critters that the rabies virus has evolved to exploit. So things like raccoons that will grow rabid and aggressive and foam at the mouth, all those famous manipulations. Um, and it's, why didn't I think of this before, right? Of course, rabies is a manipulative virus. And, you know, and that's, and there's a couple of degrees here, and it's it's more complicated than making the host angry. So you, of course, want to make it angry so it can bite another critter and transmit the virus um, because the virus spends its time in the frothing saliva in the mouth. Um, but it's even more complicated because it turns out the virus also does an extra manipulation in that it makes the host not only not want to drink water, but to actually fear water. And where this gets incredibly disturbing is when you have humans infected with rabies and you know if you famously if you don't get your vaccines if you get bit you start presenting symptoms before that you get your vaccines you're okay but after that it's almost certainly a death sentence it's just downhill from there it will almost always kill you um, so you will actually can find videos that are extremely difficult to watch videos online of, of people in the throes of these 
these viral infections and a nurse will try to present uh, the patient with a cup of water and they'll physically recoil. So, you know, as I mentioned, the, the rabies virus didn't evolve to exploit our brains. Um, it, it evolved in other critters like raccoons or something raccoon-like a mammal a long time ago. But because we share this mammalian brain that has largely the same structures, uh, it is able to manipulate us as well. It's not going to go anywhere. Usually, you know, if you get infected with babies, you're not going to be running around biting people. Uh, it, it just does devastating things to the human body. But because we share this biology in a way with the critters that the rabies virus evolved to uh, exploit, we are ourselves vulnerable. And it's, it's important to think of rabies not just as this devastating virus, but as this extremely clever pathogen that manipulates behavior in a number of ways. Uh, it's just so easy to forget that. And, and it, it turns out that the rabies virus is actually the uh, inspiration for the zombie of pop culture that we know and love today. When you think about it, what is a zombie doing? It's, it's aggressive, it's biting. Uh, and it turns out that the rabies virus gave rise to that pop culture phenomenon. So this whole time, not only has rabies been uh, a manipulative pathogen, it has been the entire inspiration for the zombie that we know and love today. You have been writing about zombieism in nature for a long time, both in, in Wired and in your first book. And now that continues to to expand. There's more animals that you're covering. There's there's more science that's being uncovered. There's more places this just exists. I, I, I'm really curious what you walk away with from this experience of of tracking so many different forms of this of this zombie behavior in the animal kingdom and, and what it really means for for what you see when you look out that window at that at that wild ecosystem out there. Yeah, it really makes you think about what behavior is, right? So we like to think of ourselves as fully in control of our behavior. We're humans, we're this vaunted species, we're better than everything else. We have these great big brains. Um, but it turns out, you know, writing a book like this, it really drove home the point for me that we are meat. Our brains are meat. We are, as the rabies virus shows, uh, we are extremely vulnerable to the same manipulations that you find out in nature, whether that's with a fungus or a worm um, or a wasp. And you start thinking also about what it means to be a species. So, you know, a, a zombie ant gets infected and it can end up being 50% by weight fungus. So when does an ant stop being an ant and start being something different? Is it when the fungus reaches that 50% threshold of taking over the body weight? Is it when the fungus flips a switch and then orders the ant to walk out of the colony and, and sabotage it? What is an ant really when you think about it, whether it's infected by a fungus or not? You know, where do we draw the line? And, and you know, writing about this across so many different species, you start to wonder how, how much of the behavior that we see in animals and with humans can be chalked up to the brain itself and how much of it is a manipulation by a parasite that we might not even know about. That's the, the other tough thing is that, again, we are visual animals. We see animals acting weird out in nature and we think, oh, something might be different there. Let's open it up and you find a worm and you develop over many years the science of how a worm can manipulate a crustacean 
in a pond. Um, but, you, you know, you start to think about, well, that's the thing that we see. What else is out there that's being manipulated? Other kinds of behavior, with whether it's sounds or smells that animals are using to communicate with. How much of animal behavior can you chalk up to an individual animal and how much of it might be a parasite pulling strings? Uh, I think that that's what's actually scary and exciting about this in the coming years and decades that I don't see this science as stopping anytime soon because it's so fascinating, but it will be extremely interesting to see what scientists uncover from here, not just what are these ones that we know about doing to manipulate, what chemicals are we talking about, what kinds of brain structures are they manipulating, but what is out there that we just don't know about yet that could be way more complicated than already very complicated uh, manipulations that we have been talking about. That is both terrifying to me, what it means for what might be in our brains with, you know, toxoplasmosa, uh, like you mentioned, but other things that we just don't know about yet. How much of our thinking is our own thinking? How much of a raccoon's thinking of it is its own thinking? And, And how much might we actually chalk up to parasites that might be in our heads? Well, I have to go to the restroom now, and now I'm wondering if that is my choice or someone else's. This may be the best argument yet for free will being an illusion. Um, Matt Simon, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. And thank you for having me. I hope that interview wasn't as terrifying for you as it was for me, because I certainly had a few nightmares or two after. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, David Noel, Charles Blau, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show. You can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can get an ad-free version of the show there. Find us on Twitter and on Facebook. And send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, the best zombie in the animal kingdom, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music was provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Andrea will be back next week. See you then. Today's episode is sponsored by News Voice. News Voice is a new app that is revolutionizing the way we read news. Shaped by its readers, it shows you different perspectives so it's truly unbiased, open, and democratized. You get all news in one place. I downloaded News Voice to try it out, and one thing I really appreciate about it is just how well designed it is. Super easy to use, clean design, it's great. If you want to try it out, you can download NewsVoice at newsvoice.com slash minds. That's newsvoice.com slash M-I-N-D-S. And it's free, so check it out. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.